Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Now to the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine. In Russia today, it is rare to find someone who is willing to publicly criticize. Russia hit several major cities with airstrikes overnight. These kind of reactions are the reason I do these protests. A critic of the war in Ukraine brings his case to diplomats' front doors. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... The criminal charges that rocked pro hockey. If it didn't know, it ought to have known. And the meaning of the delay in laying them. Year of the drone. No longer have a monopoly on the use of killer drones. How cheap unmanned aircraft can rewrite the rules of war. And the unlikely triumph of suits. The Meghan Markle show. How a middle brow legal drama broke the record for home streaming. All today on day six. The Lawyers We Love to Love edition. In 2024, Russia's war against Ukraine is as brutal as it ever has been. Both sides are still taking heavy casualties and the battles are ferocious. This month marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. Both sides are dug in despite taking heavy losses. Ukraine is considering a military draft and the questions about the West's commitment to continue funding Ukraine's war efforts are getting louder. This week, the EU approved an aid package worth more than $70 billion, but the U.S. Congress has yet to approve its next aid package. When Russia invaded Ukraine, American legal analyst and scholar Benjamin Wittes decided to launch a campaign of his own, projecting pro-Ukraine images on the exterior walls of Russian embassies. He is still at it two years later, and he recently received the Golden Heart Award from the president of Ukraine. Ben Wittes, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks for having me. How did it feel to learn that you've been awarded the Golden Heart from the president of Ukraine? It was a heck of a surprise. You know, when I started this very strange campaign, the only official recognition that I was thinking about was from the Russian side. Could I annoy them enough to put me on the sanctions list? Could I provoke an official statement of some kind. They have now complained publicly to the Canadian government about me and to the American government about me. So I was really expecting any sort of official recognition to be completely negative and from the Russian side. And so it was delightful and very surprising to uh, see this kind of guerrilla campaign of protests recognized in a positive way by the Ukrainian side. Well, congratulations. It's lovely that you didn't expect it, and there it was. So, But when you decided you wanted to annoy the Russians, how did you get the idea that setting up laser lights and projecting messages and images on the sides of their buildings was the right way to do it? 
Yeah. So that's an interesting story. There is a guy early in the Trump administration named Robin Bell who captured a lot of people's imaginations in Washington when he projected uh, the text of the emoluments clause of the Constitution <laughs> onto the Trump Hotel. Right. It was a kind of an awesome guerrilla protest. And so shortly after the full-scale invasion, I – was driving by the Russian embassy in Washington. And, you know, it's this giant white marble edifice, mm -hmm. very forbidding looking. It's kind of like the Death Star. But it did look suddenly to me like a movie screen. Mm -hmm. And I tweeted, somebody ought to project a Ukrainian flag onto it. And I never imagined that somebody would be me. I just <laughs> thought maybe Robin Bell would do it. And a lot of people had retweeted it and said, what a great idea. I hate that building, you know. Um, and a few weeks later, it occurred to me that, you know, if somebody was going to do it, it was going to be me. And around the same time that I had that realization, this student texted me that he thought he'd figured out a way to do it. Mm -hmm. We ended up in this little caper to put a Ukrainian flag on the building. And that's how it all started. Projecting the Ukrainian flag feels like a, a dignified kind of protest, but you do get more truculent than that with the content of the images, don't you? I hope to, yeah. I think one of the very important dimensions of these protests is that we refuse, I refuse, to treat the Russian diplomatic presence as dignified or legitimate. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people who choose to represent a government that is actively trying to annihilate another country's sovereignty and killing a huge number of its people. And so I want to tell them very explicitly that I judge them. You know, they can choose not to be exposed to what the world thinks of them, but they can't stop me from writing it on their walls. So how explicit do you get? What is the most ribald thing that you put on the wall? The most consistently uh, inappropriate thing is Putin Khylo, which is uh, both in Ukrainian and in Russian a probably unmentionable obscenity on a family broadcast that uh, equates the president of Russia with an unmentionable part of the anatomy. It's more <laughs> offensive in the Slavic languages than the rough translation in English would be. Now, you were apparently delighted when the Russian embassy in Ottawa reacted and, and complained about you to the Canadian government. What did they do and why did it make you so happy? You know, I love the reactions that these protests provoke from the Russians, from the fact that they train their own spotlights on their own walls to try to drown out the messages we project, to the thug they sent across the street to try to physically block the projections with umbrellas, to the official protests that they lodge with governments uh, like the Canadian government and the American government, which do not prevent me from doing it. And so when the group in Ottawa that I was working with requested a permit to come back to Ottawa and do these projections a second time, the Russian government protested and said publicly um, that this endangered their personnel, that my use of lasers and lights was dangerous to the eyesight of personnel. This is the same government that is indiscriminately shelling Ukrainian cities and you know kidnapping 20,000 children. Mm -hmm. um, but they are deeply concerned about the human safety associated with 
you know, some guy, middle-aged nobody who shines a light on their building. Um, the second thing that they did was that they articulated their legal theory of why Canada was obliged to prevent me from doing this. You know, the, the grave threat to the dignity mm. of the Russian Federation, mm -hmm. you know, letting me uh, shine these lights. And I thought, you know, the idea that there's some great dignitary interest of the state that is conquering territory, murdering large numbers of people in Bucha and in Mariupol, that there's some dignitary interest that Canada has some, you know, holy obligation under the Vienna Convention to protect, I thought was charming and, and laughable. And these kind of reactions are the reason I do these protests. You know, if some middle-aged desk worker shines lights on an embassy in the normal world, that's called a midlife crisis. And, um, you know, nobody notices or cares. The reason people noticed and cared when we did this the first time was that they took out their lights and tried to drown it out. And we ended up with this incredible viral video of them chasing the Ukrainian flag around the Russian embassy, which, of course, immediately got set to music and um, was seen by millions of people around the world. Ben, the U.S. Congress has yet to pass the next block of funding for Ukraine, and this week that feels less likely than ever. What laser light message would you like to project on the U.S. Capitol building? So I do not project on the U.S. Capitol building, and I want the Capitol Police who may be listening to this to <laughs> uh, hear that. I have, however, projected on the National Mall, so there's some nice video of our messages to the U.S. Congress with the Capitol in the background, and we'll be doing more of that in the coming weeks. Look, uh, the administration is in the right place. Uh, the majority of both houses are in the right place, but the structure of power within the Republican Party is preventing both the Senate and the House from acting in a reasonable time frame and endangering the substance of this. And this is you know, actually causing ammunition shortages for the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I were the type to project onto the dome of the Capitol, which I would never do, um, it would say, do your job. Ben Wittes, I hope you get to go to Kiev to receive your Golden Heart Award from President Zelensky. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Still to come, the sexual assault charges against five former junior hockey players and what they say about the possibility of change. We cannot keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to have a different result. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. These are sensitive conversations involving children, and I hope we can depoliticize these issues as much as possible as we work through the process of implementing these policies into law and uh, regulation in a fair and effective way. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is planning sweeping changes to the province's policies on gender identity. Among the changes, 
puberty blockers and hormone therapies would not be permitted for children 15 and under. Children 15 and under would need parental permission to use a different name or pronoun at school. Parents would be able to opt their children out of lessons about sex education, and trans women would be prohibited from competing in women's sports. The proposed policies would go further than similar laws in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan. And... I understand why Goliath companies want to pull out and be like, oh, we're not making enough money, but they are making enough money. TikTok has begun pulling songs from the world's biggest music company off its platform. The licensing agreement between TikTok and Universal Music Group came to an end on Wednesday. UMG represents many of the world's biggest artists, Taylor Swift, Drake, The Weeknd, Bad Bunny. It says TikTok isn't paying its artists enough. TikTok is a hugely influential platform when it comes to music. It says Universal isn't acting in its artists' interests. Until a new agreement is reached, Universal artists won't appear in search results and existing videos will be muted. We saw some of the images today and they're horrific, but obviously fake. Yeah. But if yeah. this can happen to Taylor Swift... This could happen to any of us. Last weekend, Twitter X halted searches for Taylor Swift after fake, sexually explicit AI-generated photos of her flooded social media. X suspended accounts sharing the photos, but one image had been viewed more than 47 million times before it was removed. And the fake images continued to spread on other platforms. Thankfully, the Legion of Swifties pushed back on her behalf. Taylor Swift isn't the only celebrity whose image is being faked, albeit without the sexually explicit content. If you use X or Facebook, then over the past few weeks, you've likely seen ads featuring fake images of Canadian celebrities with allegations that they're involved in big scandals. One of the first to be targeted is Mary Berg, the host of the CTV cooking show, The Good Stuff. Like my friend Kyle says, a little bit of ketchup on there, never hurt anybody. Berg's show is high energy, it's pretty wholesome, so an altered photo of her in handcuffs is bound to get some attention. Mary Berg's not alone. After those ads, others popped up showing fake images of Sidney Crosby, Michael Buble, and Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, among others. All of these ads show doctored images of the celebrities being arrested or in tears. All of them spread misinformation. And if you click on the ad, but really, please don't, you will be taken to a fake news story about cryptocurrency. In short, Every click is about making money or spreading misinformation or getting your information. My first motivation for propagating or enticing a person to click on my phishing link is the first one is to gather as many as I can to just propagate this in a big network. So this is done. God knows how many people are ready. And even they just take one or two person to the second level of giving more information, in this case for Bitcoin, they already won. They, 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 they don't even need to continue. A lot of people without knowing publish this and this propagates uh, very, very fast. And many of the people which are involved in this don't have any clue that this is actually a fake content because they don't have any tool or any way of 
verifying the the truthfulness of that content that they're publishing and to be honest they don't they don't must mostly care they don't have the time they just click on the retweet button and it's out there Amir Farouzi and Sajjad Doda are researchers with the Canadian Institute for Cybersecurity at the University of New Brunswick. For the past four years, they've been collecting data with permission from Twitter X. We are working on detecting fake content or any type of hostile type of content throughout the web. So we are focusing on content in the news and social media specifically for uh, Twitter, which is X right now. And they've seen some changes since Elon Musk took over. First, the data they used to be able to collect for free now costs anywhere from $5,000 to $60,000 a month. And that means fewer researchers can afford it, even though there's still a lot of work to be done. We will have a very huge drop in terms of research work on Twitter, which is one of the most influential social media platforms right now. People are talking about many things and affecting many areas in Twitter, uh, including politics and so many other areas. So that's something that to be concerned about. Another change they've noticed is that more dodgy content seems to be making its way online. The filters don't appear to be as effective. So there's a big need. There's a big need of having some type of monitoring over at least the contents. And Saj Judd says he had real concerns about the upcoming U.S. elections because in 2015, foreign bots trying to influence the election were removed from Twitter. This time, he's not sure that will happen. At the end of the day, eventually, you have to educate yourself and others and just... uh, Hopefully they listen. The people that are publishing fake content, they don't think twice about it. They're they're getting money or they have getting some benefit out of this. But the people that unknowingly share this should think twice before clicking on that button. And we should have some tools that can help them to decide whether it's a good idea to share this or not. Amir Farouzi and Sajjad Doda are both researchers with the Canadian Institute for Cybersecurity at the University of New Brunswick. Still to come on day six, cheap, effective, deadly. How drones became the leveling weapon in today's global conflicts. Very sort of cheap tools can have an outsized impact. I'm Brent Bambury. I think Hockey Canada has historically dropped the ball when it comes to dealing with situations like this, and specifically in this case. Hockey Canada's first instinct was to look within, and it was very much consistent with hockey culture generally, which is to protect the jersey, to protect those in the dressing room. Greg Gilhooley is a former junior hockey player and one of the people abused by disgraced coach Graham James. Greg is now a lawyer in Toronto, and he has been paying close attention to the investigation of the 2018 national junior team. This week, five former members of that team came forward to face charges of sexual assault. Police in London, Ontario, are holding a news conference about the charges on Monday. The alleged victim, known as EM, says she was sexually assaulted by at least five members of the team in June of 2018. The original police investigation was closed. Then, in 2022... 
TSN reporter Rick Westhead got a tip about a $3.5 million settlement between Hockey Canada and EM, the alleged victim in this case. That settlement and the fact that Hockey Canada had an existing fund to settle cases like this sparked outrage. The public backlash led to a parliamentary investigation and the resignation of Hockey Canada's CEO and entire board. The problem is that Hockey Canada wanted to pretend that these things weren't happening within the game and it did not want to draw attention to the fact that these things happen more than people might otherwise realize. Christy Elaine is a sociology professor at St. Thomas University in Fredericton. She has spent years speaking with hockey players and studying hockey culture in Canada. Christy, good morning. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. This incident happened in June of 2018. Nearly six years later, charges are being laid. What was your reaction to that news? I'd like to say I was surprised, but I wasn't. Um, I... I was concerned. I was pleased to see the massive reaction by the press, the public, the state, and others. Um, but I and I was hopeful that this would be the end of this. That there would be enough public outcry now that over this incident that we wouldn't have to do this again. But when we look at the roots of the public's awareness of this, if if Rick Westhead at TSN had not received a tip about EM's lawsuit against Hockey Canada. We may not have been aware of this story at all. What does that tell you about Hockey Canada? It tells me that Hockey Canada's commitment is not to transparency. It's not to the well-being of our community. It's not to national projects that work to celebrate what it means to be Canadian through the sport of ice hockey. It shows me that Hockey Canada's commitment is to protecting itself and legacies of violence that, that are linked to elite men's hockey culture in this country for generations now. And that's one of the major hockey institutions in Canada. But the other is the NHL. I want to ask you about Dylan Dubé, who is from the Calgary Flames, who's now on leave from the team. The team says that they didn't know about the pending charge against him when he went on leave. But given that both Hockey Canada and the NHL investigated this case, what do you make of the fact that the team said they had no knowledge of these pending charges? I think like everybody, we find that hard to believe. There was mass speculation about who might have been involved. The NHL, as you said, had their own investigation. Hockey Canada has its own investigation. Um, if it didn't know, it ought to have known. And the fact that it says it didn't know or put him on leave for mental health instead of actually being transparent about what's going on with this athlete, I think tells us a lot about whose interests are being protected by hockey institutions uh, in Canada and in North America broadly. When word came that Hockey Canada used a slush fund to pay the complainant in this lawsuit, there was a huge public backlash. And there were some changes at Hockey Canada. How important do you think those changes are? How effective have they been in addressing the issues? I've not seen them to be effective at all, to be perfectly honest. I would have expected uh, much more transparency for them to be issuing public statements, for there to be a mass overhaul of men and boys elite level hockey in this country, given the seriousness of what seems to have been going on for generations. And yet we haven't seen that at all. We've seen a transformation in the leadership 
but no true transformation in the culture of hockey, which will require something you know, massive. We can't see a change in the leadership structure that doesn't trickle down to the provincial bodies and to the teams themselves. To actually fix the problem with hockey today, we really need to see that overall change in the entire system. What we've seen in the past is a system that produces uh, violence, that produces secrecy, that produces a lack of transparency. We've seen athletes who are trained in this system, who develop in this system, who themselves are victims of violence, who produce violence in their communities, come back and train the next generation of young boys and men to do exactly the same thing. And unless Hockey Canada is interested in transforming the system by letting in new voices, by breaking that cycle of violence, we will just see the same things over and over again. And from what I've seen, Hockey Canada has shown very little interest in that kind of wholesale change that we desperately need right now. That wholesale change that you just described, though, that is massive. You're talking about changing giant institutions with an historical hold on our culture. So changing generations of hockey culture, that task, where do you start? What are... What would you prescribe to, to make us believe that we're on the right track? We have to open the shades, right? We have to see transparency to begin with. We have to know what's going on. And we're not seeing that with Hockey Canada. Every day there are new complaints about a lack of transparency with Hockey Canada. That's step one. Step two is letting in new voices. Let scholars, let uh, anti-sexual assault activists, let people who have expertise in masculinity, let these people who are not traditional hockey people in, let them coach our players, let them speak to our players, let them be parts of these teams. That would be a good place to begin. We cannot keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to have a different result. We keep letting the same men train these boys who have been trained in the system. It's just absolutely not possible. Do you think that the rise of women's hockey could change the culture? Do you think, do you, do you see any sign of that happening already? I, I think it can change the culture of hockey in Canada and that I'm hopeful that we'll see you know, our women athletes be heroes in the same way that we've allowed our men's athletes to be heroes. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that women's hockey offers us an interesting perspective. It's a space where we see a lot more gender and sexual diversity. Uh, we see a lot less conformity. We don't see the same forms of sexual violence in general. It would be wonderful if some of the lessons coming out of better hockey spaces can help inform the young men's elite level hockey in this country and whether that be women's hockey, the hockey played by old people, non-competitive hockey, queer hockey, would just be wonderful to see those kinds of voices informing uh, men's hockey. Are you expecting changes at the NHL as a result of them seeing their players charged with this offense? I would like to say yes, but I'm suspicious, you know, moments after the announcement that players were going to be charged, that their players were going to be charged. We saw the NHL, you know, obfuscate truth here by sending out a press release suggesting that maybe there'd be expansion to Salt Lake City. This is a way of, of changing the narrative and, and, you know, changing people's focus. We really need the NHL to, you know, set the tone, take this seriously, make comments about what's happening be front and center in the press, telling us that this is unacceptable. Professor Christy Elaine, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Christy Elaine is a sociology professor at St. Thomas University. 
Прийшли окупанти до нас в Україну, форма новенька, воєнні машини так трохи поплавився їх інвентар. That's Bayraktar, a popular Ukrainian folk song written as an ode to a Turkish-made drone, the Bayraktar drone. That piece of equipment was such an important tool in the early days of the Ukraine war that this song was written to celebrate. The rapid development and widespread use of drones are changing the face of warfare in real time. For 20 years, the U.S. has dominated the field and the skies, but the proliferation of drones has put that prime position in jeopardy. Last Sunday, it was a drone attack that killed three U.S. ground troops and injured dozens more at a base in Jordan near the Syrian border. It's a very serious moment uh, for the U.S. military, for President Biden, for the administration writ large, because this is the first time that U.S. service members have actually been killed from hostile fire since the war in Gaza began. Joshua Keating says the attack also marks an important shift in the balance of power in conflicts all over the world. Joshua is a senior correspondent with Vox. Good morning, Joshua. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you for having me. This drone attack that left U.S. troops dead and injured on the weekend was not unusual, but the outcome was. Why is it so shocking that this weapon managed to hit a target? Well, the U.S. military has sort of gotten used to having air dominance or uh, air superiority in all the conflicts that it has fought. I mean, that that superiority has been so complete that actually no U.S. ground troops have been killed by an enemy aircraft since the Korean War uh, more than 70 years ago. Mm. So, I mean, it, it sort of depends how you define aircraft, but that record may have been broken on Sunday. So, you know, we, we have been seeing a lot of attacks on U.S. troops using rockets and drones, particularly since the October 7th attacks and since the war in Gaza began. But these are the first fatalities and also, you know, apparently the first deaths of U.S. ground troops in a drone strike ever. So this really could be viewed as as kind of a turning point in the history of drone warfare. The drone that was successful in in this case, do you believe this was a drone that is of a high-tech variety or do you think it's something closer to what you or I could buy off the shelf? It's somewhere in the middle, really. I mean, we don't know exactly what it was, but, you know, it's been described as a one-way attack drone, which are sometimes called kamikaze drones. And these are the kind of weapons we've been seeing a lot of in the war of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran has uh, provided a lot of these to Russia, which uh, the Russians have been using to attack uh, Ukrainian cities. So this, you know, unlike the sort of predator drones we all became familiar with during the war on terror, this is one that's sort of designed to basically sort of loiter over its target and then crash into it and explode. So this this isn't quite what you could, you know, buy on Amazon, but it's it's definitely not as kind of expensive or as high tech as uh, some of the weapons that we're maybe more familiar with in the U.S. arsenal. But what does this attack tell us then, or, or the success of this attack? What does it tell us about the state of drone warfare today? I think it tells us that the U.S., Uh, and its allies no longer have a monopoly on the use of killer drones to the extent they already did. I mean, the U.S. launched its first attempted drone strike in 2001, you know, shortly after the 9-11 attacks. And for about the first decade, the way we talked about these drones were as a kind of symbol of U.S. dominance that the U.S., the CIA and the military and a few close U.S. allies were using these weapons to basically strike 
alleged terrorist targets outside of traditional battlefields all over the world and doing it mm -hmm. without putting our own soldiers at risk. So most of the debate at this period focused on the legality or the ethics of these weapons right. rather than the idea that, you know, the U.S. troops uh, in the Middle East could actually be a target of these drones. And we've been building towards this for a while. You know, groups like Hezbollah have been using killer drones since, you know, about 2011. Uh, we saw ISIS use them, uh, the Houthis. So it's been more and more obvious for a while that, you know, these sort of non-state violent actors have been uh, incorporating these weapons into their arsenals. And, you know, a lot of experts I talked to say it was sort of only a matter of time before uh, an incident like this happened. And you mentioned that drones have played a major role in the war in Ukraine. And we did hear a piece of a folk song earlier that was a tribute to the Bayraktar Turkish drone. But how are Russians using drones in that conflict right now? This has shown how drones can sort of operate as part of the sort of overall, you know, combined arms of a, you know, traditional nation state military. And both sides have been doing this. The, as I mentioned before, the Russians have been using these Iranian supplied Shahed kamikaze drones to attack Ukrainian cities and attack Ukraine's energy infrastructure, basically as a way of kind of like raising the cost of the war for, you know, ordinary Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. But we've also seen them used a lot for surveillance on the battlefield. So this is basically drones can identify a target, which then, uh, you know, the army can fire artillery at it. And this has been so effective at both sides that, you know, the in an interview a few weeks ago, the commander of Ukraine's armed forces basically said it's made maneuver warfare impossible for both the Ukrainians and the Russians. And that's a big reason why the conflict has sort of reached the condition of stalemate that it's in now. Tell me a little bit about the drones that are more do-it-yourself, the kinds of, of weapons that are not expensive and that allow an insurgency group to arm pretty easily with, with, without having to make major investments. I think that's been what's sort of been most striking in Ukraine is the fact that some of the most decisive weapons have not been the sort of big high-tech systems, you know, provided by the U.S., but these kind of DIY models, you know, the, the DJI Mavic, which is a Chinese drone that, you know, you can just buy on the internet as a, as a toy, basically. Uh, people have been adapting these for surveillance. People have adapted them to sort of drop grenades. I mean, uh, you know, one of the sort of striking images for the early, early months of the war is actually drone footage taken from these drones, which show them sort of hovering over Russian tanks and dropping small explosives onto them. So we, we've seen a ton of adaptation on both sides where uh, the sort of fighters in the field have been using drones and sort of adapting them for use on the battlefield. And, you know, particularly on the Ukrainian side, you've seen, you know, these kind of maker factories in uh, Ukrainian cities where sort of tech workers have been sort of redirecting their efforts towards developing drone technologies specifically for use on the battlefield. So it's been a real kind of, you could call it a real sort of Cambrian explosion of drone innovation spurred by this war. What about innovations in defense now to, to try to deal with this kind of warfare? What kind of conversations do you think are happening inside the U.S. military right now about how to deal with this product that's, that's changed the balance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in an interview a couple of years ago, uh, Kenneth McKenzie, who's the uh, commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, I mean, said that basically the U.S. often no longer can take air superiority for granted because of what he called Costco drones, like these sort of small, cheap, mm. easily adapted drones. 
you know, the U.S. has defenses for these things, but, you know, it's not really cost effective to fire a, you know, a $3 million Patriot missile at a $2,000 drone. And, you know, more recently, since the war in Gaza began, uh, of course, they've been using drones as part of these attacks on shipping going through the Red Sea, which have had a major you know, sort of global economic impact. So they just show the kind of imbalance where, you know, these very sort of cheap tools can have a sort of outsized impact. Joshua Keating, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Joshua Keating is a senior correspondent for Vox, where he covers foreign policy and the future of international conflict. Still to come on day six, a documentary says more young Jewish people are alienated from Israel. We meet the director of Israelism. So many young American Jews who are deeply disillusioned. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever... Around the world, more than 80 women have accused Peter Nygaard of crimes ranging from rape to sex trafficking. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. He exceeds anything that I think our world has seen so far. A pattern of predatory behavior spanning half a century. Nygaard denies it all, but now he faces criminal charges. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. He is hid in plain sight. Evil by Design, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day six. Okay, this one I did not see coming. The TV show Suits has set a new streaming record. It racked up 57.7 billion streaming minutes in 2023. It beat out fan favorites like The Office, which is impressive for a legal drama that went off the air years ago. So Suits has a few things going for it. For one, Meghan Markle acts in it, and it's available on Netflix. But Time Magazine correspondent Eliana Docterman says there's more to it. I think a lot of people are skeptical of suits or sort of look down their noses on suits because they perceive it as the Meghan Markle show. Wow, you're pretty. Good. You've hit on me. We can get it out of the way that I'm not interested. I do think that a lot of people tuned in because of Meghan Markle, but it seems like they kept watching. So there was obviously something inherently appealing beyond just Meghan. The premise of Suits is that there is a young man who has a perfect memory and he runs into a hotel room where aspirant lawyers are being interviewed for a law firm that only employs Harvard graduates. You give me this and I will work as hard as it takes to school those Harvard douches and become the best lawyer you have ever seen. I'm emailing the firm I just found our next associate. He is able to convince the interviewer that he should get a spot. And every few episodes... She knows. She can't. She does. A new character will find out and need to be blackmailed or bribed to keep this secret for, frankly, this rather mediocre white man. I think when I first watched it, there were a lot more shows like Suits, which were what I call ludicrous procedurals. That was this. 
case that's tailor-made for someone with a hedge fund background. Every episode, there's a new case or a new problem to solve. New York Teachers Pension Fund just lost 30% of their annual income. Nowadays, shows are often much shorter, cost a lot more to make, or they cost almost nothing to make, and our reality TV shows, we've sort of lost that middle-brow, ludicrous procedural where you can look down at your email for 45 minutes and look back up and you haven't really missed much. You want to be a writer? Then write. But don't ever threaten me or my firm again. The show actually is more clever than it needs to be. It has enough one-liners to keep you entertained. Well, then give me a deed, I'll do it. Give me a mountain, I'll climb it. Give me a Katy Perry song, I'll sing it. Another ludicrous part of this series is that the name of this firm changes like every year. Because as my first official act is named partner, I told her not to. What? You heard me. As people are always sort of competing and backstabbing each other to become name partner. My name's going up there first thing tomorrow. Which seems like a huge marketing problem. Like nobody would know how to contact this law firm or what its reputation was if its name was constantly changing. I can't just slap your name up there one morning. I think one of the appeals of the show that's often overlooked is that Suits is ultimately an optimistic show, and I think it has been in vogue for a decade and a half now for prestige shows to be rather dark. We've lost a lot of those shows that have a happy ending. Suits is an example of a show that is comforting, and I think that there's a thirst for that. Aliana Docterman is a writer for Time Magazine. You see what non-democracy looks like. What we've been told is that the only way that Jews can be safe is if Palestinians are not safe. The more I learned about that, the more I came to see that as a lie. Within the Jewish community, oh, there's been a striking change. That's from the trailer for a new documentary called Israelism. It tells the stories of young Jewish Americans re-examining what they've been taught about Israel and paints a portrait of a growing generational divide in Jewish communities. The documentary was completed before the attacks by Hamas on Israel on October 7th, but the questions it raises have taken on a new urgency since then. Aaron Axelman is one of the documentary's filmmakers. Aaron, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Brent. I want to start by playing a brief clip from the film. Here it is. Can you separate Israel in, in Judaism? I don't know. I can't. You know, some people I think can. To me, it's the same. Israel is Judaism and Judaism is Israel. That's a Jewish educator talking about how connected her teachings are to the state of Israel. And I'm wondering, Aaron, does that resonate with you? What was your relationship to Israel like when you were growing up? Yeah, it certainly resonated with me for a portion of my life. You know, as a young person, I really fell in love with the story of Israel, how it was told to me. Um, it was a story of redemption and redefinition and, you know, becoming strong. But I began to change in high school as I encountered Palestinian narratives. As a young person, when I began to realize that that traditional story essentially erased the Palestinians, it was a big moment for me and really began my kind of, you know, uh, trajectory of transformation. And what you found is that there are a number of young Jewish Americans and Canadians who share that experience, and you introduce them to us in your film. I want to play another clip of the documentary. This is one of the protagonists of your film. This is Simone Zimmerman. I remember very vividly I was sitting in my dorm room with a friend of mine, 
We got a phone call that an anti-Israel bill was being introduced in the student government. We bolted on the way, called our parents, both got sent talking points, and then we went into this student government meeting. Please, I beg of you, I beg you please to have compassion and to remember that we are alienating students and I am devastated by this bill. I am a human being. I still remember you have these Palestinian students who get up and said, you know, Jewish students, you are crying about feeling silenced and marginalized. You know, my aunts and cousins didn't sleep for weeks while bombs were falling overhead in Gaza. What do you have to say to that? Simone Zimmerman in, in the documentary. And Israelism points to what you see as this growing generational divide. And I should point out, you made this before October 7th when the Hamas attacks happened and Israel had their response. But why do you think the shift was well underway among some young Jewish people before then? Yeah, I mean, and, and the shift is quite profound. You know, I think a lot of the kind of you know traditional pro-Israel leadership tries to make it seem like the American and North American Jewish communities are united uh, about Israel, but we are incredibly divided on the issue of Israel to the point where you know polling in the U.S. shows that, and this is before October seventh, twenty-five percent of all American Jews think Israel is committing the crime of apartheid, uh, especially in the West Bank. And when you go to younger Jews, Jews forty and younger, it's almost forty percent. And I think we realize that partly by meeting Palestinians. And when many of us actually go there, you know, many of us spend a lot of time in Israel, and when we actually see it up close and we see the settlement project as well, which is actively colonizing the West Bank with the stated goal of making the Palestinian state impossible, it's heartbreaking. It's truly heartbreaking, especially because we grow up really believing that Israel is this kind of, you know, wonderful um, place where we can kind of live out, you know, our dreams as, as the Jewish people. But we realize that, you know, Israeli history is actually quite similar to Canadian history and American history. Use of the words apartheid, colonization, uh, occupation, as you just used, will often result in a charge of anti-Semitism from people who reject those criticisms of Israel. How do you defend that? What do you say? I mean, people call us anti-Semitic all the time, which is insane. I mean, again, our, my, my family fled anti-Semitism. I never thought I would charge Israel with committing the crime of apartheid. But when you go there and you see it, there's no other word for it. Israeli settlers get to live in a full-fledged democracy. Palestinians living literally next door do not get to go to civilian uh, courts. They do not have freedom of speech. They do not have freedom of assembly. They cannot vote. So I know those are difficult words, you know, to, and, and they can be difficult for us to understand, but that's what I see. But you're still being called an anti-Semite. And, and we see the same thing happening to Simone Zimmerman in your film. What's behind the impulse to charge anyone who criticizes Israel with anti-Semitism? I think our community or many members of our community, especially, you know, groups like APAC and the Anti-Defamation League, have really tried to create an American Jewish and a Canadian Jewish identity based around support for Israel. And that's largely what our film is about, the idea that, you know, many of us going to grow up believing that being a Jewish person means having an affiliation uh, with the Jewish state. Um, and so when you begin to criticize the Jewish state, many people think that you are actually criticizing Judaism itself, which is far from the truth. When I criticize Saudi Arabia, I am not criticizing Islam. When I criticize China, I am not criticizing all the Chinese people. Israel is a government. Israel is a state. And talking about the actions of a state is not racism. A major reason why people try to call all criticism of, of Israel anti-Semitic is to silence criticism of Israel and to delegitimize criticism of Israel. And as more and more Jewish people, again, begin criticizing Israel, it becomes harder and harder for that label to stick because we are obviously not anti-Semitic. We care deeply about Jewish people. It's partly because we care about Jewish people that we are horrified that our own people are doing this. 
Your documentary introduces us to young Americans who served in the Israeli military, and they are now critical of the army and, and the army's actions. What is the relationship of American Jewish institutions to the IDF, to the to the Israeli military? Yeah, this is this is one of the more tragic you know aspects is that you know a lot of a lot of our institutions, not all of them, you know, really tell us as young people that the best thing we can do. The most amazing thing we can do is to join the Israeli military, that that is the way that we can support the Jewish people to the best of our ability. One of our producers is a British Jew who himself joined the Israeli military as a young man, thinking that it was truly, again, you know, the best thing he could do for his people. And he realized very quickly that what he was actually doing was enforcing a system of racial hierarchy over the Palestinian people. And it's the greatest, from what he tells me, it's, it's the greatest heartbreak of his life. Um, and it's the reason why he wanted to be part of this film, because it tells his story and it tells the story of so many young American Jews who are deeply disillusioned when they actually realize the ways in which Israel's actions affect the Palestinian people. And in the film, we see former soldiers coming back to America and speaking up critically. What happens when they do that? It's, it's, it's very difficult. For many people, you know, when you speak up uh, against Israel's actions, it's, it's very isolating. We did a, a panel at Harvard a couple months ago, before October 7th, and a student who was there is now suing Harvard and saying Harvard's anti-Semitic, and they use our film as an example. And it's deeply ironic because at that screening, you know, three of the four panelists were Jewish, and half of the panelists had literally served in the Israeli military. You know, two Israeli veterans of the Israeli military just talking openly about what it was like to serve, and they're called anti-Semitic just for literally talking about their actions. Right, but, but anti-Semitism is real, and we know that anti-Semitism yes. also exists yes, in university is. campuses, especially in the United States right now. So what's at risk when criticism or lack of deference to Israel becomes conflated with anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is very real. You know, I grew up in Trump country in rural Maine. I grew up around people who believed in conspiracy theories about Jews. Um, so it's critically important to fight anti-Semitism because it endangers all of our lives so deeply. But when any criticism of Israel is called anti-Semitic, and that becomes what most people associate with anti-Semitism, it becomes much more difficult to actually fight the real anti-Semitism that exists, both on the right and the left. And it also makes it incredibly confusing for people who don't know much about this issue, who want to fight for Jewish people, who want to support Jewish people, but actually don't know what anti-Semitism is because the actual definitions of it are so muddied in the public uh, space. Hmm. So there have been attempts to cancel screenings of Israelism, including here in Canada in December. Westdale Theatre in, in Hamilton, Ontario, canceled a screening. They later reversed that decision. What are you hearing from theatres and institutions about why they're second-guessing the decision to screen the film? Yeah, you know, um, our film does make many people uncomfortable. Our film, and that's why we made it, partly. Um, many of the venues that we book screenings at, either universities or movie theaters, you know, get email campaigns, either from local activists or activists from other parts of the U.S. saying that our film, again, is dangerous. Um, and it, it's deeply ironic. Many of the places who tried to cancel the film have admitted that they have not watched the film. And uh, when they do watch the film, again, oftentimes they apologize to us afterwards and decide to screen the film. There's been virtually no actual successful cancellations. Um, because, again, our film is a, is a very Jewish film. It's told by Jewish filmmakers. It's about Jews reckoning with Jewish identity. Reckoning with Jewish identity is really interesting for me because for you, theologically, I mean, speaking as, as a person who, who, who understands your faith, how do, how do you square that with rejection of, of uncritical support for Israel? Yeah, you know, Judaism is a religion that's been around for thousands of years, you know, Israel's been around for just over 75 years. My father was born before the state of Israel was created. Um, so I understand why people, again, have an affinity for Israel, um, but I am much more 
committed to the Jewish people and the Jewish religion than I am to Israel, the state. And again, it is my Jewish values themselves that make me want to criticize Israel because I feel like Israel's actions are deeply at odds with the incredible Jewish traditions of fighting for social justice and fighting for multiracial democracy, especially in the U.S. and Canada. Um, so I actually don't see a contradiction at all, and, and I feel very at peace with my politics and how my politics um, correspond you know, with my uh, religion and, and with my history. How do you deal with the idea that without the state of Israel, there is no safe place for Jews? That it is an existential threat to Jewish existence if the state of Israel fails. You know, I, we, we get that a lot, obviously. That, that's, a, that's a primary thing. But what's so interesting is that many times when people talk about Israel, they completely erase the Palestinians, right? So even that question, right, totally erases the fact that for Israel to exist as it exists, Palestinians, right, had to be expelled, essentially. Israel was built on the ruins of Palestinian society. So I understand the desire for a Jewish state. I get that. I understand why people felt like it was necessary for Jewish safety. But we are a diasporic people. We were a diasporic people through no fault of our own, right? The Romans scattered us throughout their empire. So if we were going to create our own state, it was going to essentially have to be at the expense of someone else. And that is what happened. We created our own state at the expense of someone else. And uh, we have to reckon with that. The film is Israelism. Aaron Axelman, thank you very much for speaking with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on here. Aaron Axelman made the documentary Israelism along with co-director Sam Eilertson. Israelism has upcoming screenings in cities across Canada. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. <laughs> And here we go. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you can win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Just like butter on my lips. Chicken, chicken, you can't roost too high for me. George Harrison with Sue Me, Sue You Blues, Mississippi John Hurt and the Chicken, and Bad Flamingo with Butter, and Sean Sharp of Smithers, B.C. correctly guessed the headline that we were looking for, Indian courts to rule on dispute over who invented butter chicken. Congratulations, Sean. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. This is the song, la 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 la, Elmo's song. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Ashita Chopra. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. 
It's seven days to the Lunar New Year, one day to the Grammys, and seven days till we meet again on day six. We've sort of lost that middle brow, ludicrous procedural. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.